Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 214, recorded for May 24th, 2023. The Cloud Pod loves Inspector Gadget. Good evening, Jonathan, Ryan, Matthew, and myself. Hey, guys. Evening. Hello. How are you guys doing this week in the cloud? I already told you I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> did you did you do anything with AI this week? Or I mean, because Microsoft's been busy with AI, so you know you're on a podcast. You have to talk, Ryan. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I didn't do anything with any intelligence, much less artificial or or natural. So, like, yeah, <laughs> it's been a it's been a rough week. Yeah, it's been long. I agree. Well, there's a luckily it's a short show, so we'll see how we can talk for you know two hours. The short show <laughs> versus a really packed show, we, we bust through it in 35 minutes, so yeah. we'll see how it goes this week. <laughs> <laughs> First up, we have general news, uh, courtesy of Matt. Matt uh, found the story for us. Uh, apparently, Alibaba is getting out of the cloud business with a plan to spin off their 12 billion dollar cloud business. Uh, it's unclear, though, if they're bowing out of the market due to political pressure or if it's just a bad market. Uh, analysts value the business at $30 billion, and it once was a thriving operation that harbored the potential to have an AWS uh, level of control in China. Uh, Alibaba for years touted as its proudest and most touted accomplishment that outstripped rival offerings from Tencent and Baidu. Uh, but unfortunately, Beijing grew suspicious of private companies and their cloud services and began cracking down in 2020 while we were all locked down in covid uh, Alibaba Cloud drew regulatory ire in 2021 after that for discovering and sharing a flaw before informing authorities, apparently, and was investigated for its role in the largest cybersecurity data breach uh, in Chinese history. This has resulted in overall market losses to Huawei and China Mobile. There's a quote here from Nomura Holdings Inc. analyst Jilong Shi and Thomas Shen. Uh, the full spinoff plan involving Ali Cloud is both bold and puzzling. Ali Cloud is Baba's organic business and is still deemed as one of the long-term drivers for group for the group, even though its growth temporarily slowed down in recent quarters due to macro headwinds. That's why we find it puzzling that Baba has decided to fully spin off its business instead of retaining a minority stake. At least, uh, very interesting situation at Alibaba Cloud. I'm surprised. Actually, I thought we were going to end up talking about Alibaba on the show at some point. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was going to get big enough that eventually it would warrant uh, at least a casual look at it like we do with Oracle, uh, where, you know, either to mock it mercilessly or to at least, you know, see it as a respectable player out there. Um, but yeah, it's a, uh, you know, I hadn't realized it had started losing so much market share because it was a pretty big deal when we started the show back in 2019 or 2018. Um, you know, it was an up and comer and everyone was talking about it. Yeah. I mean, it's, I always figured the fact that I didn't hear about it more was more about, you know, the access I have to information rather than it not doing anything. So it's, it's very surprising. Um, I hope it's not bowing down to political pressure. Just, you know, like that possibility is, is always unfortunate, right? When it's going to, you know, taking away the ability for people to operate and people's hosting stuff, just, you know, some of the article comments about, you know, their role in as, cybersecurity breach and that stuff is you know that stuff happens when you're hosting hardware and it's, it's not fun yeah find a hyperscaler that hasn't been involved in a breach yeah good luck especially with how large of a market share that they have out there you know even with the breach and everything else I'm still a little bit surprised definitely there's something behind the scenes that you know is in public i feel like yeah well, I mean, I think overall Chinese market, you know, we're basically entering a very cold war period with between the U.S. and Chinese. Um, and so that's going to be interesting to see how that continues to shake out. You know, there, I saw some articles this week as well, like in the information about uh, VC firms trying to exit their investments in China and just realizing that it's not going to be the growth engine they expect it to be. Uh, I mean, we talked about here on the show, even some of the supply chain issues with China with the cloud providers and how that's impacted them. And now, you know, I just saw this week, uh, Apple just announced that they were going to start making chips with Broadcom uh, on U.S. soil for some things. So, you know, there's definitely a, a undercurrent in our politics about China in general. And I wonder if this is a reflection of some of, you know, outside of China, they're not getting a lot of traction, plus this Beijing crackdown on, cra- on cloud providers in general. Maybe this is just, you know, a situation where it's just not good to be near it until it's going to have a bad implosion in economics. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you heard of, there was, you know, the, the embargo on, 
you know, importing chips into China from the U.S. And you can sense all the political headwinds that's behind that. And it's, it's a reaction to a move the U.S. made very similarly. So it's, yeah, I can see why businesses are sort of hedging their bets and, you know, playing it safe. On the flip side, I'm kind of curious to see how taking this business unit out of the general Alibaba is going to work, you know, especially with, you know, everyone starting to yell that the big tech companies are growing too large and everything, you know, if this could be an interesting, you know, test balloon to see how AWS could, you know, spin out of Amazon, GCP could spin out of Google, Azure out of Microsoft, you know, it could be like an interesting playbook to see how they start to divide up the business units. I mean, I really don't see any anybody doing that unless they're forced to by the government. Probably not going to be willingly, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on to Amazon Web Services. Uh, they have another check the box uh, from their announcements at reInvent. Uh, so now the Amazon SageMaker geospatial capabilities are now generally available. So no longer vaporware, as we like to call it. Uh, reInvent uh, was the announcement for this in preview. The service makes it easy to build, train, and deploy machine learning models using geospatial data. data. Uh, and as part of the general ability, they're integrating this capability with KMS and VPC networks, which I'm shocked it took that long. <laughs> uh, there are several uh, additional real-world use cases uh, for this technology that they wanted to highlight in the article, and there's in more in-depth than I'll talk about here in the article, which you can click on in the show notes. Uh, you, can ma- you can use it to determine maximize harvest yield for food security. You can uh, assess damage uh, from earthquakes or other natural disasters. You can use it for climate change monitoring. They show you, you know, lake uh, levels over time being modeled in it. Uh, you can predict retail demands of new products, and you can use it to support sustainable urban development. Uh, now, if you're excited to use this product outside of anywhere but the U.S., I'm sorry, it doesn't exist for you there yet. It is only available in U.S. West, too. <laughs> so that's the only general available region. Uh, there is a free tier uh, available for the first 30 days that includes 10 free ML geospatial compute hours and up to 10 gigs of free storage and no $150 monthly user fee for one user. Uh, everything above that. And after the first 30 days will now start costing you money, uh, which I think by my rough math on this could get pretty expensive pretty quick. So be careful. And my first thought was, well, how can those how can those poor farmers afford technology like this? And I'm thinking, ah, no, we're talking about like Monsanto's yeah. of the world, yeah. <laughs> not uh, not mom and pop subs- yeah. uh, you know, subsistence farming. <laughs> yeah, I don't see that. No good. Now go build company in Indonesia using this. <laughs> you know, the farmers there. Maybe the company that was insuring the farmers might use it, uh, but that's a different business model. Yeah, it's when you realize that actually 10 compute hours is your your entire yearly profit <laughs> on your crop. <laughs> yeah. I think the the KMS and VPC integration uh, coupled with the fact that it's only available in one region makes me feel like every time I get closer to understanding like AWS infrastructure, um, I, I get farther away. Like that's this is an interesting interesting one, but I'm sure those two things are related somehow. Maybe a decoupling from U.S. East One. Maybe they're using geospatial to estimate how to pack U.S. East One, and they didn't want it to run there. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I I don't really understand this technology that well yet. But I still like to learn it more. But uh, the idea of being able to do this and model these things virtually and then do different impacts and assessments over time is is interesting use case. Um, I'm sure there, you know these use cases were enlightening to me because even when they announced it at reInvent, I didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> so now I. At least have some some frame of reference to how I might use it. Yeah, I'd be curious to see how they use it also, you know, to help their sustainability play here. You know, like are they giving it away to certain types of customers, you know, in some way, shape, or form over time? And, you know, to help, you know, AWS's and Amazon's, you know, saying that we're getting more green friendly and eco-friendly and everything too. So it'd be interesting to see over time if they start to say, hey, we gave away this technology to the farmers in Indonesia. You know, or to whoever to help them with, you know, better doing, you know, farming and all these types of things. All right. Well, let's talk about now Amazon Detective, which should have been named Inspector, but they already wasted the Inspector name on something else. And so here we are with <laughs> Amazon Security Findings with Amazon Detective. Uh, Detective now offers investigation support for findings in AWS Security Hub, in addition to those things detected by Guard Duty. It's now easier than ever before to determine the cause and impact of findings coming from new sources such as AWS Identity and Access Management, uh, which is pretty great. Uh, I happened to get a, an abuse report today 
uh, on one of my instances. And so I was checking it out and I ended up turning on the malware scanner uh, on demand. So when they detect certain types of attacks, it'll scan your system to make sure it doesn't have malware installed on it. Uh, and I was playing with the detective and the inspector. And uh, these have come a long way. I don't know if you guys looked at these recently, but uh, I was impressed how much more data they have, you know, the detail they're giving you about, you know, what the exploit looked like, what it was targeting, what it was doing. And uh, it was really great, except for the part where I had to then email abuse and tell them, you know, I've checked my system and I've you know installed patches and I don't see any issues. And then I pointed at using all these tools to prove it. And they said, well, can you give us more details? And I'm like, I, I used your tools. That's how I did it. Um <laughs> So other than that part of it, it was, yeah. uh, it was a good experience. <laughs> so, Yeah, sounds like two internal teams need to talk to one another, I think. <laughs> Our tools aren't good enough. <laughs> what did they detect out of interest? Was it like email spam or other stuff? Uh, you know, the, running a WordPress site is a security nightmare of yeah. upper proportions. And so uh, there is a, if you're using default WP login uh, PHP pages, um, there's a way to basically try to you basically ride your traffic through someone else's WP login with an include that you can basically look like you're coming from my site, but you're not actually coming from my site. But you're using my login page to basically redirect your traffic to another site. So yeah, it was uh, it was annoyance. But you know the latest patch fixes it, the exploit. So fixed, it won't come back until the next one. Yeah, until the next one. <laughs> All right. Well. If you remember go five years ago, and I, I, I almost think our show is old enough that we might have talked about this, or at least I remember this blog post. I don't know why, but uh, Jeff Barr told us how excited he was that they were announcing that all of the AWS documentation was now available to as open source and available on GitHub. Uh, but now, after those five years, they've decided that this experimentation of GitHub repos is now over. Uh, most of the repos starting the week of June 5th will, be, uh, will basically be deprecated. Uh, with all of the resources directly improve the AWS documentation website. Uh, the issue was that the primary source for most of AWS documentation is an internal system that had to be manually synced with GitHub repos. And despite the effort of their documentation team, keeping the public repos in sync has proven to be very difficult and time-consuming with several manual steps and some parallel editing. Uh, since this effort was high and consumed time that they could have been used in other ways that more directly improved the quality of the documentation, they decided this wasn't worth it anymore, which I guess that just means they laid off too many people in the documentation team and now needed to cut back on something. And this was an easy mark. Uh, they do say they will be containing, continuing to maintain repos that have code samples, sample apps, cloud formation templates, and configuration files and supplementary resources. Um, as those are primary sources and get high levels of engagement. And they said that if you use the thumbs up and thumbs down uh, feature in the documentation, that they do review that on a weekly basis. And if you create a feedback form, it'll create a ticket directly to the person who's responsible for the document itself. Which, man, could you imagine keeping that up to date? <laughs> Someone quits and now you have to go update all the documentation that that person did to some new, new person who owns it. So they get tickets assigned to them? That sounds horrible. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that, you know... It, I at least think they're addressing the concerns of, you know, why they were thinking about open sourcing those docs. Um, you know, the, that direct community engagement is the best way to sort of, you know, farm out a lot of your work and spelling and errors and, and keep things up to date. And so I think that there's, you know, I, I don't know how much value they got into it. I, I don't think I've ever detected anything and made like a pull request to the docs, but I always intended to if I found something. So I get it. A lot of interaction. Keep the good parts, hopefully. Get rid of the toil. I'm just more curious of why it was so hard to sync them. Right. It sounds like a bit of a a diversion, honestly. Like, are they using something besides Git? Like, they they have code commit, so, like, that's Git base. But do they have some other SVN, some other, you know, some other source control internally that they had to, like, rebase every time into Git and then from there then sync or like I'm more curious well, of what I, all those processes were, you know, besides maybe just cleaning up, you know, documentation that wasn't ready to be public. Well, I mean, if I were to be judgmental and assume a lot of things I don't know. Um, either it's a system which is purely a web editor where they edit all these documents in a web page. And so getting that to Git was actually complicated. Um, which I it's probably not likely with knowing Amazon and their their principles uh or it's a a complete cicd pipeline that they had to basically strip out all of the automation code out every time they wanted to actually ship that into the public repos and that was a big major pain in the butt for them to have to strip out all of the cicd and logic they used to actually build their internal build tool 
uh, an internal documentation capability because uh, it's probably you know in a full approval workflow and all kinds of things. And then how do you get it back into GitHub after the change has been made? Uh, I suspect there was just a lot of stripping of things they didn't want to be uh, made public. Well, if they can build RDS and orchestrate SQL Server clusters, you'd think they could orchestrate copying some docs up to GitHub. Seems a little odd. <laughs> on, the, on the flip side, I do remember, I think it was a couple of re-events ago when documentation got pushed to GitHub that wasn't meant to be public yet because they hadn't announced the feature till the next day and somebody typoed the time and date off by a day or something. So I think it was like exactly one hour or one day before it was supposed to be released. So I guess I can also see them be having some issues with, you know, some of those types of things where they want to keep it up to date. And now you're managing two places. But again, I feel like, like Jonathan said, they're managing all these other systems. This feels like a technically solvable problem. I'm sure it has nothing to do with the fact that they don't want Microsoft using all the contents of GitHub to, tra to train uh, AI models <laughs> or anything else. Mm. Uh, so the one thing I did learn about this uh, is that uh, in the announcement where I saw this, there's, they highlighted the importance of the new AWS documentation homepage portal, which I think I've seen this portal before, but I don't think I registered in my brain that it was a portal and that's what it was meant to be. I thought it was just a weird page. Uh, but if you go to the weird page, you'll see that they have uh, basically links now to all of the documentation very quickly. So you don't have to use my favorite search method, which was always Google. So... <laughs> Uh, you can now find documentation and links to it much quicker, as well as hands-on tutorials, security, architecture center links. Uh, all the products are listed here. Uh, and then, of course, links to the CLI and SDK tools and code examples all available here, um, which is not a bad place. A nice single source of, uh, of, of feedback. They are looking for feedback on this page, though. So if you would like to also complain about the uh, very big, boxy, and weird colors that they've used, uh, you can do so as well, which I did earlier today. <laughs> I'm just happy they have some really good documentation. Because I mean, we didn't good GCP. That is your pales in comparison. Good, yes. Oh, oh. by comparison, okay. by comparison, <laughs> better. Okay, sorry. I thought you just meant in general in the world of documentation because like, I'm like, eh. But then you compare it to Google or, or Azure. Okay, yeah, I'm with you on that. Okay, yeah, 100% agree. I will say I think the best documentation half the time is either the Terraform docs or the Boto 3 docs. I feel like even like on Azure, I'm like, okay, how do I do this? Let me go find the Terraform resource and then look at all the options and then go understand what those options are. Because now at least I have the right keywords. You think. I will guiltily admit I've done the exact same thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Read the API docs? Nah. I have also used the Terraform documentation just to understand the because like sometimes they're weird the, the options in CloudFormation or in Terraform are, op are weirdly named and you're like I don't know exactly what it is and then being able to get from the Terraform to the actual API call has been really helpful because they go read the developer doc which from Amazon that's been a helpful link too so yeah there's lots of ways to do this. Uh, and then uh, Matt contributed a second story. Now, again, he's the Azure guy, but he's committing uh, multiple <laughs> stories here not related to Azure, which you know tells you where his true heart is. But uh, this one is about <laughs> a, uh, AWS partners can now bring choice of a temporary elevated accessible uh, capability to IAM Identity Center. Uh, customers of AWS IAM Identity Center can use CyberArk Secure Cloud Access or Medic and Okta Access requests for temporarily ele or temporary elevating their access or just-in-time access. Uh, this is an ongoing collaboration with partners. AWS Identity validated these solutions integrate with Identity Center and address common customer requirements such as the ability to request and approve time-bound access to the audit action logs. Oh, and to audit action logs. Temporary elevated access allows a workforce user who does not have a standing permission to perform a task, such as changing the configuration of production environment to request permission, receive approval, and perform the task during a specific time given to them. As someone who's working towards developing this very same solution for some for a different project like this is fantastic i think that you know the the ability to have temporary access to you know cloud resources is is a big key and then especially if you're already leveraging an identity provider like being able to 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 couple those together within i am identity center is fantastic so i like i like this yeah i think it's going to really expand you know you work in terraform or any of these automation tools and there's just times sometimes either the apis are not available or if you need to do something and then you're moving to something else you have to go in and 
click ops a few things in order to make it all move properly. So having the ability to do this and say user A can go log in for 30 minutes during the maintenance window and be able to track all of it is a really nice security story and nice abilities versus, okay, let me go set a calendar reminder or, you know, let me add you to an Azure AD group and then remove you from that group in the future. You know, anything along those lines just doesn't get done. So having it all just integrated in one spot, and especially if you're using these identity managers already, makes your life significantly easier. Yeah, hopefully gone the days when I get reminders on a Friday morning to remove somebody from a role or remove somebody from a group that I added them temporarily to so they could get some access to something during a, an incident. This is it's a great solution. It's always even better that it's a third party solution than, you know, if it goes wrong you can blame somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> or just the attestation that oh no, this group membership is accurate. Yeah, I did that last week. <laughs> Still accurate. It's better than the uh, tickets from your compliance department. Hey, can you go get can you go audit all the groups, send us the list and verify who's supposed to have access? Oh wait, can you remove these three people? Cool, great. <laughs> and then regenerate all that same evidence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have a very similar feature and process right now that I have to go through at work where I get a monthly thing and says, are these people, is this access valid or, or uh, acceptable? And I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> like it doesn't have the reason why they requested it in the first place for me to answer that question. And uh, I don't have a memory that well. So I don't recall if that's appropriate access or not. Uh, it's interesting today. I was, um, you know, I was setting up my, my CLI because I installed my computer and I, I didn't uh, back up my keys file. So I, I've been deactivating some of my keys and some of my personal accounts. And so I was, I had a desire to, uh, you know, as I was doing that security abuse thing earlier, I was like, I should set up my CLI because I like to look up some things. And so I was looking at setting up uh, keys through the CLI of AWS configure. And it was, you know, I was reading the docs because it had been a little bit hot minutes since I'd done it. And I just was curious. And it was like, we don't recommend doing this way anymore. We recommend you use SSO. And I, which is now identity center services or something. And I was like, yeah, that's a good point. I should do that. Uh, and so I started going down the path of setting up AWS SSO. <laughs> Have you guys done that? <laughs> it's kind of a nightmare. I started <laughs> and stopped. <laughs> <laughs> like I got through setting up my organization and then creating the users to use the organization as an identity store, which is sort of weird to me. I'm like, wait, when did when did organizations get identities and why would I want them to be there? I guess it makes sense. But that's as far as I've gotten. So that's going to be a later Justin doesn't thing. But the first the first step was already more than I wanted to go into my personal account, I realized that I, I'm regretting this decision. Uh, and I probably should go, before I regret this further, I should probably go to make sure this isn't going to cost me a fortune. Uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it doesn't cost you anything, Identity yeah. Center. I think they tried to make it so it can be an Okta replacement and kind of manage all external things through there. But really, it's I've only ever used it where everything links to SSO, so you... Except you, you know, it automatically generates the user and the groups, and it's all tied together. And in that case, where SSO then becomes, you know, you get the nice page where you get all your accounts and everything, and you press the button and you can get your temporary credentials. And that way, it works great. I've never used it as the other way. It, it like any SSO, I always feel like requires a little bit of black magic to set up um, because you got to get all the right things in the right spot. And then as soon as it works, I'm like, okay, I'm done. I'm never not going to remember how to do this, and I'll deal with this again in six months when I have to go figure out how to set up SSO again. That's why I stopped. Was it was clearly going to take more, you know, of a design and a you know a thoughtful process than I was willing to take. You know, I'm like, oh, I'll just go play with this thing. Click, 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 click. Nope. Like, okay, wait. This is one of those things where you end up locking yourself out of of your accounts, or you end up doing something like that just because you hadn't considered all the design. Yeah, and I can see like at an organization level why I'd want to take the care. But like, if I have a single account, which I do in this case because this is my personal account, why do I? Why can't I just have like a super lightweight? Why like why can't I am and my account just become a very lightweight IDP, and then they just have this single sign-on temporary credential thing built into the like? I, I get why you want the bigger SSO in an organization, and you want to potentially replace Okta, but like, I just need a lightweight system. Like, why? Why so much complexity? Like it. it I appreciate they did it. I don't know that it's the right strategy. We'll talk about it more when I finish doing this thing because it was uh, about 25 minutes of my afternoon spent starting down this path and then realizing it was going to take more time and I needed the weekend for it. <laughs> so I will come back to this uh, this weekend. <laughs> so, so you've gone from having to manage a 
a pair of credentials in a well-known place on uh-huh. your machine to having a username and password. So now I have an organization and I have two identity stores and a local IAM identity store and an organization identity store. So it's yeah. already going well. I've already added more <laughs> complexity than I wanted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's just remember to write the password on the post-it on your keyboard. I feel yeah. like um, you're starting to get to old man yells at cloud, you know, for like, it worked before. Why are we changing it? <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, re- I'm regretting reading the part where it said like, this isn't the best practice anymore. I'm like, I think that's the best practice that I could have lived with. <laughs> so, uh, and that, and that may be my end up where I end up with this mm-hmm. process is that I close my organization and I just do something else. Cause uh, I don't know that I want this much complexity in my life. I'll give Amazon credit. They're at least not like making that impossible. Right. By- yeah. Can you exactly. delete organizations now? I can ignore yes. it forever. That's a you different story. <laughs> At one point, you could delete it. So I don't, I don't know if they gave you the ability to delete the organization. I know you, uh, you must be able to because I've moved organizations accounts from organizations. So maybe. Yeah, I mean, you can you can definitely detach sub accounts from an organization now and move them to another organization, which you cannot do at one point. But I uh, no, no, I've done it with the main. What was the main organization account though? Oh, okay. Like what was which one held well, the organization roles? Well, for a while though, you had to remove it from an organization to nothing, and then add it to the new organization. Where yeah, now I think it's seamless. Yeah, so you have to be able to delete our organization at this point. Have you been waiting months and months to hire your new AWS, GCP, or Azure architect only to have them be poached at the 11th hour by a startup with a juice bar? Initiatives stalled because you're having trouble hiring? Well, I have a simple solution, Foghorn Consulting. Foghorn Consulting provides top-notch cloud engineers to the world's most innovative companies and can be burning down your DevOps and cloud backlogs as soon as next week. Foghorn certified AWS, GCP, and Azure professionals are armed with infrastructure as code and from day one will be designing performant, optimized cloud-native or hybrid environments that deliver on the promise of cloud. Their FogOps solution even provides on-demand cloud engineering to augment your existing teams. Visit www.foghornconsulting.com or send an email to cloudtalentnow at foghornconsulting.com and tell them the CloudPod sent you. Your dedicated FogOps team is with you for the long haul and they bring their own juice. All right, let's move to Google. Uh, cloud Workstations is now generally available. And for those of you who think that I just said workspaces and it's been around forever, that's workstations, not spaces, because <laughs> naming is hard. Uh, workstations, for those who don't recall, is uh, was announced at Google Cloud Next last year. Where they introduced a cloud workstation and public preview as a vital part of the software delivery shield offering to help address the challenges related to secure software delivery. Now they're thrilled to announce the general availability of cloud workstations with a list of enhanced features providing fully managed integrated development environments on Google Cloud and the cloud workstations enable faster developer onboarding and increased developer activity while helping support your compliance requirements with an enhanced security posture. The goals are to speed up developer onboarding, provide consistent dev environments and security hardened systems. Uh, and so if you would like to force all of your developers to go use uh, a virtual workstation to do all their developer work, uh, this is available to you now. The new capabilities include BeyondCorp Enterprise Integration, BeyondCorp Threat and Data Protection, Managed Posit Workbench with RStudio, GPU Acceleration Support, GCloud CLI and Terraform Support, a shared VPC, and more regions available to you than ever before. Uh, now go build your software in the cloud. This model cracks me up because, you know, cloud security has all been about breaking down the, you know, the hardened perimeter, but then the supply issues came along and they were trying to figure out how they could protect, you know, the injection of malicious code via like, you know, someone just installing dependencies and immediately it's like, well, we're going to build a real big wall around it and it'll just be our wall. So it's cool. So it's sort of a challenge. Like it's, I get it because it's hard but it's also sort of cumbersome in that same way that you know enforcing security at the perimeter is and so it's like you know how much effort is it to maintain the the dependencies and there's going to be stuff that you just can't fetch from within this environment because it's not certified or you know maybe it's too new and that's it's going to be a pain i get it it can seem useful for for keeping data that you're working with somewhere safe and protected secrets maybe yeah. i don't i don't or just dlp yeah. in general right yeah i just don't any. necessarily see the value in you know you know a, a bad the bad actor you know the the bad developer could still inject code it doesn't it doesn't protect you against any of those things 
Well, if you can't copy paste into your workspace, you can't inject that code. <laughs> I mean, it does enable you know companies to not have to buy three, four thousand dollar laptops for every developer, and just say, "Here's a Chromebook. Go work in this thing over here." And then you probably have a lot of developers mad at you, but that's a different story. Yeah, you ever try to run like you know Microsoft Teams or or uh, Slack in a Chromebook? It's not going to work. That thing needs all the memories. Yep. It would uh, enable you to, uh, I think, what is it? Isn't Justin's goal just to use an iPad? In theory, he could just use an iPad and leverage this. Clearly, Matt never does any development work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was leaving that point out. <laughs> He's very careful with that. <laughs> I, I like the idea of having a standardized desktop with all the tools already installed because it just really sucks to see, especially new employees, spending a month yeah. getting things set up. How, however, I do value my, you know, not connected to the internet time and I can sit on a plane and do some work locally. It would, it was, there's plenty of opportunities that would be lost, I think, by forcing people to only use this. It's a good option, right? Like, you know, when I think about, you know, some of the struggles with data science and access to data, like this sort of, you know, offering can make that really easier, but I don't think it replaces my local workstation. Like it's, I tried to use, you know, code nine forever, like, no. Just can't, and it, you know it's not really the functionality of it. Like they do a pretty good job developing these things. It's just not, it's not local. It's not mine, and it doesn't have you know whatever widget I use. And so when I'm switching back and forth, I have to pay the context fee, and I get distracted, and I just end up never using it. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there is a very small class of customers who will love this, who asked for it, and then everyone else, the other ninety eight percent. And none of them will use it, right? They don't need to. It'll be inflicted on other parts of their company. It can be such a bad experience. I've, I've, I've heard terrible stories, especially offshore workers who are forced to use VDIs, and the VDIs are always thousands of miles away, even if they're on the right continent, you know, Asia or Europe are large continents. <laughs> they're slow. They're cumbersome. They're, they're a nightmare to use. It's really, really demotivating. So unless it's like right in your back door... And it feels like a local desktop experience. I think you can have a lot of pushback from people. So, I mean, I uh, I just got access to a Windows 365 uh, desktop, which is a true Windows 11 desktop experience. It makes my workspace look really bad. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, I'm like I'm very impressed with how fast it is, and it. My my only complaint is they don't have like a native Mac client for it. You have to use it in a web browser, which is kind of my one my one complaint. Um, but, uh, you know, I haven't tried on the iPad yet either. I should do that now that you mentioned it, but, um, you know, I've been using it the last couple of days, trying it out cause we're, we're rolling these out at work and, uh, for our developers who have Macs, uh, with M ones, because the fun thing about M one Macs is you can't compile X a three eighty six code on it. Uh, and so when we need to do that, uh, you have to uh, have it somewhere and they're using these workspaces to do that. So, uh, there you go. But, uh, yeah, it's a uh, definitely interesting uh, to kind of get exposure to these new, the new Windows 11 experience, what that means, and it's kind of nice. I will admit. <laughs> I mean, you can, because I just use Rosetta to do exactly that with, with Docker. Compile? Yeah. I mean, you can, you can yeah. decompile, I don't, and you can run it. I didn't know that you, you can. You can use Rosetta and Docker Desktop to emulate an x86 environment and dually builds in container. Works just fine. I mean, you can. I'm, I'm not saying you can. Is it slower? Yeah, slightly. Does it work? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. But for those developers who can't do that, then yeah, here you go. I mean, they certainly can't test things locally. If, yeah. if they're building Windows apps and .NET apps and things, if that's an issue, then that's different. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the use case used to be they would run they would run a you know a Windows VM in Fusion or something like that, and that's they do local testing if they need to. But now you can't. Yeah, I think. Fusions finally come over for ARM, but I don't. I don't actually know how well that works. Why don't you just get people Windows machines if if you're building Windows? Apps? I don't want a Windows machine. Yeah, no, because because I'll revolt. I don't want a Windows machine, but give me a Mac that I have to use a Windows remote right. desktop to do my work. In for that, like one thing in the sprint. Yeah, yeah, I'd rather have that. I definitely don't have Parallels installed on my Mac with Windows installed, so I could do specific things that make my life easier. <laughs> Exactly. All right, let's move on to Azure. Speaking of Microsoft, <laughs> uh, Build, Microsoft Build, which is their big developer conference, uh, was this week. And uh, 
guess what? They announced a ton of AI stuff. <laughs> no way. Yeah, shocker. Uh, so first of all, uh, if you are uh, upgrade your Windows 11 uh, computer at home or at work, you're on Windows 11 or you're using a Windows 365 uh, desktop 11 experience like I have, uh, you're about to get a lot of AI built in. <laughs> a lot of AI in the form of AI Copilot, which will be coming to Windows 11. Uh, but the cool thing about that is they're actually enabling those Copilot uh, capabilities. We have plugins. Those plugins are available to developers to write their own plugins to actually augment and uh, help you with your AI needs. Uh, they've also, Microsoft said they will use the same plugin standard as ChatGPT to allow easy interoperability between Azure AI and, of course, Microsoft's uh, Copilot AI solutions and GitHub AI. Um, so you get the advantage of being able to write those plugins once and use them wherever you want to. Uh, so in the Azure, Azure family, Azure AI Studio was the first big announcement, which will make it simple to integrate external data sources into Azure OpenAI services. In addition, they're interesting Azure machine learning prompt flow to make it easier for developers to construct prompts while taking advantage of popular open source prompt orchestration solutions like Semantic Kernel. Uh, Azure OpenAI services bringing advanced models to integrate external data sources into Azure OpenAI service. In addition, they're excited to introduce Azure machine learning prompt flow uh, to that process as well. And then uh, one I was excited about, Microsoft Fabric is a new unified platform for analytics that includes data engineering, data integration, data warehousing, data science, real-time analytics, applied observability, and business intelligence, all connected to a single data repo called OneLake. Uh, but the cool part is Copilot in Fabric uh, is an every data experience. Customers can use a conversational language to create data flows and data pipelines, generate code and entire functions, build machine learning models, or visualize the results. So... Write your report as just talking to it. I'd like a report that shows this chart with this data set and it'll just make it. And if it can do that for pivot tables, I am in love. <laughs> <laughs> it's very Star Trek yeah. like, isn't it? It is. Mm -hmm. And then uh, if you didn't like uh if you didn't like uh Google's cloud workstations, they uh announced the Azure Dev Box, uh, which is their version of a developer in a box solution. Uh, is including customization now and a new start, new starter developer images. So you can also get a developer experience. Now, I don't know why we didn't go with Azure DevBox. We went with Windows 65, but, uh, you yeah, there you go. You know, so we were right about low code being a non-starter. I just don't think we quite saw these AI tools <laughs> yeah. coming quite as fast as they have. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Drag and drop, we knew it wasn't going to work. But if I could just say it, well, okay. Yeah, yeah. no, it's because it's, there's nothing worse than trying to figure out, you know, the fields of a data and, and, you know, dimension it the right way and then screwing it all up and not knowing how to get back to the three changes ago when it was sort of what you wanted, but not quite. And I do really like this. I've been playing around with more and more solutions that are similar, you know, asking, asking for like, what's the, you know, most, you know, most, what has the most hits in this field or whatever, you know, trying to figure that out and it just graphs it all out. It's really nice. And you know, I'm lazier for it, which is great. I think the race is like officially on now between Google getting uh, Bard or whatever integrations and personal assistants set up on Android phones and maybe Chromebooks. They don't really hear much about Chromebooks anymore. And, uh, and Microsoft on Windows 11. One, one that mean, will win. Just imagine what would happen if Microsoft still had still had a phone ecosystem. That would that would have been oh yeah a huge game changer. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't think the, um, I definitely don't think that anybody saw AI coming in our conversations about low code, no code. <laughs> so uh, I think now that we see low code, no code, now it all makes sense how, and now we see AI, it makes sense how low code, no code will work. Um, you know, I just didn't have the foresight to see that part of the picture, but uh, yeah, here we are. But yeah, uh, it'll be interesting to see, continue what people actually start doing with these things. I'm waiting for more commercial applications to get launched, but uh, you know, everyone and their mother has an AI announcement, it seems. Um, I actually saw some rumblings about Amazon's AI capabilities. It's hard to get into, apparently, or if not impossible, into their large language model over at AWS. So I'm uh, curious to see if they catch up and how they catch up this year at reInvent. Because I think right now, if you look at the three cloud providers, they probably are the weakest in terms of an AI for LLM model. All right, well, let's move to our cloud journey series. Uh, today, we're talking about security in cloud native. And uh, there's quite a bit to uh, unpack here. There's, of course, managed services and security. There's uh, connectivity capabilities, as well as how do you deal with things like dynamic environments and auto scaling and all these other things that are come kind of side effects of cloud native uh, in some ways through a security team who wants you to install firewalls 
and DLP solutions and all kinds of horrendous things. But uh, I think the very beginning place that I'd probably start in security and cloud native is uh, it's encrypt everything everywhere. And that's from both a TLS perspective of you know the data moving between components and APIs and microservices and endpoints, uh, as well as the data at rest when it sits on a disk. But that's encrypted using you know, your own KMS keys, either provisioned through a KMS or potentially even using an HSM appliance if you're in a high security uh, environment. Yeah, I feel like it goes back to, I think it was like Vogel shirt from years ago that was like encrypt everything. Mm-hmm. If it's you know anywhere possible, you should be running encryption. You know, it, There isn't a massive overhead. Um, I remember back in the day I was working you know, with a company and this is like 20 years ago, they were like all excited because on the firewalls, they were going to decrypt all the SSL on the firewalls and not have to pass the traffic through to the underlying hosts for the web servers. And nowadays it's the exact opposite. Decrypt one place, re-encrypt going to the next level. It doesn't add anything. It doesn't cost you that much. Just do it. And then you're also going to make your security department, your clients department, any audits you have to go through be exponentially easier and happier. I think there's more to that, though. I mean, you can encrypt everything, but now you've got keys to manage. So do you use a cloud provider's key store or do you not trust them like a lot of people don't and use HSMs or or something else? I mean, it's a a big thing, right? You have to design your application and take advantage of that, too. You know, are you going to encrypt everything using a single key? Are you going to encrypt maybe per environment? Are you going to handle it at that level? Or are you going to do, like... Per customer, if it's if that's applicable, and so a lot of the design sessions, you have to sort of figure that out and figure out if you can take advantage of, you know, a managed provider to handle that for you, or at least you know, act as the the distributor or coordinator. Yeah, I mean, I think you you can kill yourself in complexity here if you don't think it through. <laughs> this is definitely an area as you think about your cloud native architecture. You need to think about your encryption strategy and. Is it tenant level? Is it in database? Is it column level? Is it row level? Um, you know, there's lots of technologies. We talked about many of them, you know, on the show about different uh, encryption models and different security things being added into things like SageMaker and Vertex to support those use cases. So it's definitely something to consider. And uh, even it's more complicated as you're thinking about your data lake, right? And separating your data from your data uh, from the application and your monolith into a data lake, and then how do you now encrypt that data, and how do you get the benefits of big data if you have to do encryption and decryption in the middle of it? There's a lot of things that kind of come into play on that uh, that you have to think through. There are some uh, managed services to help you with some of this, like DLP from Google is a great one, I think. Uh, you know, to really you can get a cloud native uh, tokenization capability with DLP, which is nice, and the ability to actually say, you know, this data that is sensitive PI data, I want to use a token. I don't get that token from the DLP solution, and then I want to store that data in my database. Uh, but you know, the reality in most cloud providers, um, other than Google, they don't really have this capability as a managed service for you. You get things like Config and Security Hub, which are more like security assessors or things like Inspector we talked about earlier, uh, or potentially uh, some type of threat detection or threat hunting capabilities. But you don't get a lot of data security elements uh, from the cloud providers here. So this is an area that you do end up typically rolling um, either custom third-party software uh, or you're writing your own solutions using services like Vault or KMS to then natively do things in this particular space. So this is an area, I'd probably say it's the weakest area of cloud native, <laughs> in my opinion, on what's available to you as a managed service, but um, it's so important. You can't forget about it. Wasn't it Peter's prediction? I feel like every year for multiple years that AWS was going to roll out a DLP solution. Uh, I mean, yeah, I think I started it and then he took over. <laughs> well, they got a checkbox now that makes buckets not public anymore. Yeah, by default. It automatically does that now. <laughs> done and done. What else do we need? Why yeah. would we encrypt the data? That makes no sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so you kind of start thinking about um, you know, this story, you know, again, you kind of get into zero trust access, which we'll try to have a whole segment just on zero trust uh, at the point in the future. But, you know, being able to dynamically pipe traffic between different components, being able to, you know, use attribute based access controls versus role based access controls. Like this becomes a big part of your security story as well. Uh, but what do you think about, you know, dynamic environments, Ryan, and, and securing these things? How does that work with a Palo Alto firewall, perhaps? Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> Not great if you don't do it right, right? Like uh, these things are, 
you know, we've had decades of, of managing security in our environments and data centers, and we've built tooling to match. And um, it's, it's always my favorite cloud experience when, you know, the security team comes up and says, you know, oh, we've got a vulnerability at this IP. That's not a thing. <laughs> like that, that IP is gone. That's been gone for a long time. Like it's, you know, it's, it is an ephemeral construct and, and a lot of the tools are built to identify those sort of uh, things by stuff that's very static in a data center, but is not very static in a cloud environment. And so I think it's, it's also one of those things where people need to really, you know, think it through and not, you know, ignore the contextual data of this. And so being able to enrich that wherever possible, as far as your application, you know, deployment goes with, you know, tagging and any kind of, you know, instrumentation you can put in the app itself, um, where, you know, and, but then there's also sort of the, you know, the challenge that I think security teams have, which are, you know, they're going to have to do a better job at sort of, rather than just detecting this, like that detection needs to come with data enrichment at that detection method as well. It's, it's definitely a challenge, but I mean, there's more modern solutions to these things. It's just don't rely on the old way of doing things necessarily. And that's where I feel like a lot of, at least a couple of the, the security people that I work with and, you know, talk to and I trust, you know, are trying to move their companies and move, you know, people away from all these old school, hey, this IP address has this vulnerability. Because one time I was told by a security department that, a Linux, a Windows server had a Linux vulnerability or the opposite. I was like, this doesn't even make sense. Sure, I'll kill the server. It doesn't matter. But, you know, actually starting to look at it from the next level and, you know, really taking, you know, okay, how do we do it? How do we, how do we actually get our security in at the ground level versus tack it on at the end? And we can play buzzword bingo here. And, you know, the big philosophy right now is shift left and, you know, working through that, but, you know, making sure that, like Ryan said, it's all enriched with the, all the data that security needs to do their job. Well, I mean, great segue because, you know, shift left is, a, is an important part of this, which is, you know, we, we have traditionally relied on infrastructure scans and hardened perimeters and sort of to, to ensure good security. But the reality is, is that these things are exposed. They are more public. Um, there's much more control in the developer's hands as far as limiting or granting access to via network resources. And so that shift left is super crucial because not only do you need to embed all that security into your applications, understanding the flows of and how these two things talk to each other. Sometimes it's with, you know, even outside of your control. Um, and so like that's sort of, one of those things where I think, you know, we're only going to get there by, by moving this responsibility directly to the people that are, you know, care and feeding these applications and the environments they run in. Yeah. I think the problem is just that everyone had their own very siloed areas of responsibility. So you'd have the virtualization team and the network team and the, you know, the release team, security team, they all have their own separate sets of tools with no access to each other's tools. And so it's really kind of like this is the only way that those those machines could be scanned was by feeding in a massive subnet and just pinging everything until they got some response from something or installing agents everywhere. And it really isn't a model that translates well to the cloud and also scaling groups or managed instance groups. So, you know, the, the, the tools of yesteryear, like Qualys, for example, they, they either need to... Uh, modernize very quickly or they, they're going to die a very quick death um, and lose out to much more um, sort of well-integrated tools like Bionic, for example, which we've looked at recently. It's pretty cool. Yeah, and I've also looked at, you know, other solutions in the space too, antimatter for, you know, ton at levels, encryption capabilities. There's just, there's a lot of technology coming in this space. So, you know, if it doesn't exist today, it may not exist. I mean, it doesn't mean that doesn't exist tomorrow. <laughs> is what we're finding. And so, uh, you know, as you continue down this path, continue to keep an eye on the market, attend conferences, keep listening to us, of course, and we'll tell you about cool stuff we learn it, run into. But uh, yeah, the security space and cloud native is, is rapidly evolving. Shift left, DevSecOps, all these things are, are pushing the envelope of legacy tools. And so you're seeing new vendors kind of step into the fray uh, to meet those needs from a cloud native perspective. Awesome. Well, guys, I will let you go and enjoy the rest of your week. Uh, enjoy the cloud. See you next week. See you later. Bye, Bye everybody. 
And that is The Week in Cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions. So for today's after show, I uh, I did a thing. Uh, I did a thing. I did a you thing. Did. Yep. And uh, it was I blame Sarah for this thing <laughs> because a friend of the show, Sarah Simcoe uh, or Tumbarella, uh, you know, as we know her, uh, basically was complaining to us in our internal Slack channel about her need to visualize our cloud infrastructure, which is always a uh, a fun thing. And so she was talking about. Uh, you know, a tool she was looking at called Cloud Docket, uh, which I had never heard of. <laughs> and so I said, well, I don't know how much I believe in this tool. Uh, and so I went out and I, I played with them on my personal uh, account. Actually, my friend's personal account, uh, barbecuegrills.com, if you're looking for a grill. Uh, I, I plug for him uh, <laughs> as I use his website as my trial for this, this conversation because <laughs> it was a little bit more interesting than the CloudPod uh, account because he actually has multiple web servers and a load balancer and and containers and things running in it. And so uh, I went on a journey and I went to go play with these tools and I gave my feedback to Sarah. Uh, and so I thought I would share these with you. Uh, and so let's start out with uh, Cloud Docket, which is the one that Sarah recommended. And I'm including these in our chat room. So you guys are doing these real time here. Uh, so this this is a web server. Uh, you know, basically there, there's two documents here. There's first a, a listing of uh, all of the assets in the account, which I can literally get from... Uh, Basically, any any API call, uh, Cloud Docket did include a little bit of um, security checks, you know, and things that they thought were things you should be aware of. They give you a breakdown and some pie charts uh, around different things, compliance rule violations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then a listing of a ton of things. And this document that this generated is over over 200, 244 pages long. <laughs> so not super helpful. And then it gave you a diagram, which is the, the cloud docket by location diagram it gave you, which uh, is the region. That has, and it's not horrendous other than it's about 12 miles wide. <laughs> uh, and you can basically see, you know, all the different VPCs and subnets and all the ENI attachments in this one here. So this is, this is my first attempt. Uh, would, either, would any of you guys pay for this tool? No, I have a question though. Before I say, yes. before I to qualify that, is this the only output from the tool? Is it, is this literally what you get when you run the tool, or or can you kind of export it in something that's usable? So uh, this this was what I the output of the tool. Um, I do believe I could uh, modify it as a PNG or a PDF. You do have to modify it in their tool. <laughs> even more uh, so, yeah. So even more useful. So you can't really. None of these, I will say none of the three tools that we looked at here today, like natively output into VSD file unless you pay for the enterprise version uh, that I could see. Uh, but the cloud docket was very bare bones and I don't know where she found this tool. And I said, there must be something better. <laughs> and so I, I went and searched. Uh, and my next one up was Lucid Scale, which I think Ryan actually suggested in the chat. Uh, and so uh, I went and I ran the same thing. And now I would like to point out that uh, most of the providers other than Cloud Docket, uh, you know, gave me the option of giving them, you know, sharing permissions uh, through IAM roles. Uh, Cloud Docket, I had to give it actual keys, which was not so great. <laughs> so always, always a quality sign of a quality product when you have to give it uh, keys. Um, so let's move on to Lucid uh, here, and these will all be in the show notes for you guys to to poke at, so you can see them. This is this is better. I, I will say. I was I was very pleased with the first outcome of my Lucid graph. Um, this one uh, was a little more better organized. It was still wide, but not twelve thousand miles wide. But you know, very basic. It didn't have any security controls. Not that I really care what Cloud Docker gave me from that space, but you know, it was a nice plus one to have. Uh, you know, and it gave me a, a respectable viewpoint of uh, this particular network. Um, you know, the VPCs here, I see my things. I don't see any of my public IP addresses, but I do see my load balancers. Um, it doesn't break out some of the things like the buckets uh, that are involved, like the other one you saw. Um, so this is my Lucid scale demo. Uh, and like I said, I, I don't hate this. I, this is, I think, a good starting place for many people to then take this and go edit it in Visual Studio. Uh, our Lucid actually had pretty nice uh, online editing if you pay for the enterprise features. 
Uh, you can edit this pretty easily in their tool. It can help you lay things out. You can double click into these boxes and it gives you kind of the next level breakdown of them. So it's not not horrendous, but uh, there you go. Oh, so this is the the picture is, is sort of a live document where yeah. you can interact with it. And you can share it to cool. people and you know they can go play with it too. So you don't have to do everything um, you know, in PDF or PNGs. You can actually make that a live share and out there. This tool got a lot better. I remember beta testing it with them like five, if I don't know how long, like a couple years ago. And like we tried to run it against one of our accounts and it looked a lot more like the first one that you posted. So they've definitely done a lot to like kind of clean it up and organize it in a way that kind of makes a little bit more sense. It do, I do like the fact that like you like, or I assume like you said that you can like double click in and hopefully get like a little bit more of a detailed view on specific pieces. Yeah, I I mean I've drawn this document or versions of it so many times, right? In different tools, whether and so like it's nice to have that auto generated and the fact that if if it's dynamic, especially if you could integrate it into you know, you know, a cloud security posture management server or something along those lines, it would be super cool to do. I'd love I'd love to have sort of a visual CMDB, if you will. It's not bad. It looks nice. It's certainly something I'd put in the slide. But it doesn't do a good job of um, showing me the flows of data from various places to other places. It's it's kind of it's still kind of very inventory based. Well, I think the reality is a lot of these tools have a very inventory perspective, um, and some of them do have more like you can add flow log analysis to it and things like that. I think that was one of the things Lucid Scale had as one of their enterprise features, um, and it can give you some more detail on that. But yeah, you know, again, like. Oh, the amount of time that I spent on these, I think each tool I spent probably 20 to 30 minutes on playing with it and just kind of seeing what it could do, uh, just get kind of an idea of what it, what its capabilities were. But, um, yeah, I, again, I think there's no end all be all perfect solution to these tools. <laughs> and then my, uh, the, the final one I looked at though, uh, is a company called Hava.io. Uh, and this one I actually liked quite a bit. Um, it was my winner just to, to bury the hatchet here a little bit. Uh, so they, the nice thing about this is they broke it down into multiple tabs. So it, was, it wasn't just one diagram and then double-clicking. It was like, here's you know, several different tabs you can look at. Uh, it very clearly articulated out uh, my, my different buckets, which have static websites in them. It gave me all of my uh, DNS information very clearly where it's all pointing into a single ALB. And that ALB is then routing traffic between the three different nodes that I have in the system. It's really easy to see. Uh, you know, can see my alerts here as well, which was kind of a nice touch. Uh, and I can see some of my pipe, my Lambda code in the everything document. And then if you broke it down into the VPC, you could actually start seeing, um, you know, just a VPC view, which was very similar to what we got from lucid scale, uh, with less, some, some less detail. So overall I thought, you know, this was pretty nice. Uh, it was easy to read. Uh, I was able to follow the flow relatively easily. And so this one was my winner out of the three. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we're gonna, Sarah and I are talking about how we can maybe go use this on the day job for Google. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's uh, nice to see uh, some options. So I wanted to share these with you guys. I thought you might be interested. Yeah. No, I mean, and this goes to exactly what Jonathan was referencing. This one has, you know, sort of that flow through from load balancer to individual nodes and that relationship as well as, you know, connectivity between VPCs. So, yeah, but it's still readable, which is sort of amazing because even when I do it by hand, it turns into like sort of a pile of spaghetti I threw on top of a network diagram. So this is great. Yeah. Cause the real answer to what, what do we have deployed in, uh, in an account or in a project should be, well, let's refer to the architecture diagram. <laughs> yeah. We should know what we've got there cause we put it there. Oh, you! Never the case. You're so (laughs) funny. Yeah, yeah. You're a perfect world. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Hang on, let me just come down from my ivory tower. (laughs) Yeah. So there you go. That's my uh, that was my Justin does a thing. I thought you guys would enjoy. uh, Yeah. Kind of seeing what I was playing with here, uh, in this particular case. I look forward to. I probably have to implement this. See what the last one was the last one because I, I would have also stopped at that one. Not not just because I'd spent an hour on it already, but because it's uh that's decent output. Well I was I was sort of there there were a couple other players that I was sort of interested in. I think Ryan actually mentioned another one, but um it didn't support Google, <laughs> which was a big killer for us because it was part of our value, you know, we needed we need something that provides multi-cloud and we have Azure and we have AWS and we have Google and um you know I 
we that's why we need kind of the next level to see how it works in a Google environment because maybe it's not as good in Google. But um, you know, it was really came down to if it didn't support Google, I wasn't going to try it. And so that's there's a couple others I could play with, and maybe I will in the future uh, post show. But uh, yeah, I thought this was um, it was a good worth spending. It was worthwhile spending some time on it before we went into and actually did a full you know vendor evaluation, talk to a sales rep, and it was nice they all had free trials and had the ability for me to do this. Uh, they have been spamming my my CloudPod email account though, but that's okay. They can do that all they want to. <laughs> There's still a cost. <laughs> I can ignore them for a while. I'm pretty good at it. So, <laughs> well, you probably already inundated, I imagine, since I am indeed. Good. All right, guys. I'll talk to you next week. Yep. See you. Good night. See you later. Bye, everyone. <laughs>